Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio from Monday, February 12th, 2024. The Senate back in for more work on the $95 billion foreign aid bill for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan after meeting for a rare weekend session, including on Super Bowl Sunday. It was made necessary because the Republican senators who oppose the bill, while they don't number enough to actually defeat it, do have the power to extend the debate for days under Senate rules. And they have. The White House National Security Spokesperson John Kirby responds to Donald Trump's comments on Saturday that NATO allies that do not spend enough on their military could not be assured the U.S. would defend them against Russia. The Pentagon says Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has canceled his trip to NATO headquarters in Belgium while he remains hospitalized, dealing with further complications from prostate cancer. We'll get the latest from the Pentagon Press Secretary. President Joe Biden jokes about his age and memory at a speech at the D.C. Conference of the National Association of Counties. This after last week's special counsel report that suggested the president's memory is fading. President Biden meeting today with Jordan's King Abdullah II at the White House, talking about the war between Israel and Hamas, the fighting around Rafah in southern Gaza, and the potential for a ceasefire and hostage release agreement. Plus, the U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai on whether the World Trade Organization is still relevant. FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr says that Apple should be investigated for working to undermine an app called Beeper Mini. And plenty of Super Bowl and Taylor Swift references at Washington news conferences and events this day after the big game. An article from Reuters, the U.S. Senate on Monday will attempt to steer a $95.34 billion package containing aid for Ukraine and Israel to passage this week following months of delays, even as it lacked any guarantee that the House representatives will support the measure. On Sunday, the bill got a boost when the Senate voted 67 to 27 to move it past an important procedural hurdle. Also over the weekend, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer set a course for passage by Wednesday. On Monday, the Senate is expected to cast a procedural vote that, if successful, would keep the bill moving forward. That was from Reuters. The procedural vote could happen tonight, and if it succeeds, gets more than 60. And all 30 hours of permitted time after that is used, no time yielded back, that would put a vote on final passage in the 2 to 3 a.m. Eastern time slot Wednesday morning. Here's Senator Chuck Schumer on the Senate floor today. Over the weekend... The Senate took the significant step towards passing the National Security Supplemental by voting last night on cloture on the substitute 6727. By now, we have taken numerous procedural votes that prove beyond doubt that there's strong support behind this bill. It's time to finish the job and get this critical bill passed. If we want the world to remain a safe place for freedom, for democratic principles, for American prosperity, then elected leaders need to put in the work to make that happen. We need to approve the investments that ensure our people's security, ensure the security of our partners, and prevent our adversaries from gaining an edge over us. These are enormously high stakes of the national security package. Our security, our values, our democracy. It's a down payment for the survival of Western democracy and the survival of American values. The entire world is going to remember what the Senate does in the next few days. Nothing, nothing would make Putin happier right now than to see Congress waver in its support for Ukraine. 
Nothing would help him more on the battlefield. And if some people think Putin's going to stop at Ukraine, if they think it's somehow better to reason with him, to appease him, to hear him out, then these modern-day Neville Chamberlains ignore the warnings of history. The appetites of autocrats are never-ending. And make no mistake, the war in Ukraine is not some regional struggle. Its effects will reverberate around the world. The Chinese Communist Party, the Iranian regime, and our adversaries, and all of our adversaries are going to take note if America fails to defend a democracy and ally in need. They will conclude that if America fails one of our friends, it will fail others too, and they will act accordingly. Imagine what kind of message failure by Congress would send to NATO. Imagine what it sends to our partners whose troops fought with us and bled with us and died with us after 9-11, even though it wasn't them who were under attack. Imagine what message in action would send to Taiwan or the Philippines or other places around the world. The message, if we fail, would be that America can't be trusted. We, as a body, as a, as a Congress, and as a country, cannot afford to send that message. The Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York, today on the Senate floor. The $95 billion bill includes about $60 billion for Ukraine, $14 billion for Israel, $9 billion for humanitarian aid to Gaza, $8 billion for Taiwan and other U.S. allies in the Indo-Pacific. 18 Republican senators voting yes with almost all senators in the Democratic caucus on the procedural votes so far. One of the Republican opponents, Tommy Tuberville of Alabama, spoke on the Senate floor today. I come to the floor today in opposition to the Senate's effort to give away $60 billion more of our taxpayer dollars and weapons to Ukraine. We should not give another dime to Ukraine until we secure our border for our citizens. That's what we're here for. The Senate will be in order. Please take your conversations outside. In December, all of 49 Republicans voted to defeat similar legislation because it did nothing for our southern border. Senate Republicans were unanimous. We had a consensus in the Republican conference that we should not give more money to other countries until we secured our southern border. I still believe that. My position has not changed since December. The 17 Republicans who voted to take up this legislation can explain their change of heart themselves. It's up to them. My demands have not changed. We should not send a dime to Ukraine until our borders are fully secured. We have already given Ukraine more than $120 billion. This is more than enough money to secure every border in our country. Unfortunately, but predictably, the $120 billion we've sent to Ukraine has resulted in a years-long stalemate that has cost hundreds of thousands of lives, both Ukrainian and Russian. This money is in addition to the executive actions that Joe Biden has taken to isolate Russia from the global financial system. None of this has worked to either deter Russia or force parties to the table to negotiate a diplomatic solution. Yet some of my colleagues think that another 60 billion, another 60 billion 
of what 120 billion failed to do will do the trick. It doesn't make sense. Now should be a time for diplomacy. What a thought. Bring this war to an end. Stop the killing and bloodshed. Senator Tommy Tuberville, Republican from Alabama, today on the Senate floor. This morning, we spoke with Mike Lillis, congressional reporter with The Hill, about how Republican senators opposing this $95 billion foreign aid bill have been able to extend the debate from last week through the weekend. And when it does pass the Senate, what might happen in the House? Here's Mike Lillis. Why is this one seemingly getting so many votes on it for folks who are used to a vote to end debate and then a vote on final passage. Why is this thing sort of inching along? Uh, you know, because the Senate is, you know, it's a it's a very obscure body. It has a lot of obscure rules. And uh, without an agreement from all 100 senators to, to move quickly on bills, uh, one member can hold it up. In this case, it's Rand Paul from Kentucky, Mitch McConnell's, uh, you know, companion over there from from Kentucky. And so there's an irony to that. Uh, because Rand Paul has emerged as one of uh, McConnell's, uh, you know, loudest critics here. Uh, so it makes for some interesting state politics. But uh, if you don't have all 100, they can they can they can force the issue. Uh, they, they're procedural tactics that, that they can use. They're trying to get amendments. Uh, you know, the, there is the filibuster that they have to get over, of course. And uh, and, you know, these clocks are usually, you know, it's 30 hours in between votes. And, and that can take a long time uh, to get these things done. But again, we think it will be this week, uh, there's only so much uh, that they can do to hold it up. They can delay, but they can't block in this case uh, as long as McConnell can bring along uh, enough Republicans to, to get it over the 60 vote threshold, which he's already proven he can do. For our viewers, uh, we're talking about a $95 billion bill at this point, although that could change on final passage, some $60 billion of that in aid for Ukraine. Uh, let's just play this out and say the Senate does pass this. Again, they had uh, 67 votes yesterday, so it's at least looking like that. What happens then when this gets sent over to the House? Uh, and is this thing going to get a vote in the House? That's kind of the million dollar question. You know, John, for all the difficulty that they're having in the Senate, the House uh, is an even tougher body to move this thing through. Uh, and that's for a couple reasons. But, uh, but, you know, most starkly, it is because of Donald Trump. Donald Trump opposes this thing. He opposed it when the border language was attached. Um, and that didn't get through the Senate last week. Uh, he still opposes it now that the border language is out of it. Uh, he doesn't think that the United States should be spending a lot of money overseas, particularly given the debt, particularly given the border crisis here at home. Uh, and, you know, he is by far the most popular person in his party. And, and what he says matters. And uh, people who criticize him do it at their own peril because, uh, you know, he, they will get primary. There's there's just a, a very simple political calculation that they're making. And so Speaker Mike Johnson, he's only four months into the job. Um, he's had, you know, he's by all accounts, he's, he's managing pretty well, but he has had some stumbling blocks. And, and last week was one of them. We can get into that a little bit later. But, um, you know, he is faced with an extremely tough decision here, assuming that the Senate passes this bill, because if he puts it on the floor, there are already explicit threats uh, that there will be a motion to vacate. That is the technical term for what brought down his predecessor, Kevin McCarthy. It just means that we're going to kick you out of the speakership. Uh, and Marjorie Taylor Greene has already said, if you bring Ukraine bill to the floor and we don't like it, uh, I will bring that motion to vacate. Uh, so that raises the question, uh, would it pass? Uh, Democrats, of course, did not help Kevin McCarthy. They voted unanimously against him. And so it only took a handful of Republicans to remove McCarthy. 
Would they do the same thing with Mike Johnson? We aren't sure just yet, but uh, uh, several Repub- uh, several Democrats, I'm sorry, we've talked to have said that, uh, you know, the chaos is, is just a little bit too much. Mike Johnson has proven himself as someone who will negotiate with Biden, negotiate with Schumer, pass, you know, responsible spending bills, keep the government open. And if Marjorie Taylor Greene brings the motion to vacate, we will help keep Mike Johnson in power. So there are already those voices saying that uh, whether there would be enough of them, we don't know how many Republicans would join uh, Greene. We don't know. Uh, So a lot of balls in the air. Uh, if Johnson brings the bill to the floor. So that raises the question, would he not bring it to the floor? Um, And there is a a technique, a procedure for bringing a bill to the floor around the wishes of the GOP uh, leader, and it's called a discharge petition. And it just means if you get 218 signatures on this petition, you force a vote onto the floor, even if uh, the majority leaders don't want it. So Mike Johnson doesn't want to bring it to the floor. If the Democrats can find enough people to support their discharge petition, enough Republicans to support their discharge petition, it would force a vote, in which case we think it would pass because there would be enough Republicans, centrist Republicans, enough centrist Democrats who would um, who would join that push. So uh, a couple different scenarios there. We don't know which one is going to happen. Uh, but even yesterday, we heard Tom Tillis saying the discharge petition might be the best way to do this. Uh, and Mark Wayne Muller, another Republican senator supportive of this package, said we're already talking to House Republicans about it. Um, one more thing I should mention about that route, if they do go the discharge petition route, typically on a you know on a bill like this, um, you'd have 100 percent of the House Democrats signing on to it. There are 212 House Democrats right now. Um, and that would mean that you would only need a handful of Republican signatures. But in this case, uh, we think that there will be a number of uh, liberal House Democrats who will join Bernie Sanders in opposing this package to protest the Israel military aid, uh, again, because of the civilian casualties in Gaza. And uh, we don't think that they would sign a discharge petition. How many of them are there? We don't know the answer to that. But uh, if if it's not 100, if it's not 212 Democrats, that means you need more Republicans. Um, so it just becomes a, a very tricky math problem. Uh, but it would insulate uh, Speaker Johnson from any you know accusations from the right that he brought a bill to the floor against the wishes of Donald Trump. Mike Lillis, congressional reporter with The Hill, joining C-SPAN on this morning's Washington Journal program. The bill not yet in the House has not yet passed the Senate. Final vote could happen later this week. As always, you can follow the Senate debate live, gavel to gavel, on C-SPAN 2 television or on the C-SPAN Now mobile app streamed at cspan.org. Senator J.D. Vance, Republican of Ohio, sent a memo to each of his Republican colleagues today in the Senate saying an impeachment time bomb is buried in the $95 billion foreign aid bill, one that would prevent Donald Trump, should he win the November election for president, from trying to stop funding for Ukraine. J.D. Vance writes the supplemental spending bill represents an attempt by the foreign policy blob deep state to stop President Trump from pursuing his desired policy. And if he does so anyway, provide grounds to impeach him and undermine his administration. In the memo, Senator Vance notes that $1.6 billion is for foreign military financing in Ukraine and $13.7 billion for the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative, both of which expire September 30th, 2025, after this year's election. The White House today is responding to former president and Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump's comments about NATO. He made those comments at a campaign rally in Conway, South Carolina on Saturday. Donald Trump was telling a story about a leader of a NATO country, he didn't say which one, who asked him how the U.S. would respond if Russia took aggressive action against this NATO member. 
and this NATO member had not met the threshold of defense spending. The president of a big country stood up and said, well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay, you're delinquent. He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. Former President Trump in South Carolina on Saturday. Here's the question to the White House spokesperson, John Kirby, at today's White House briefing. What is the White House reaction to Trump saying he would encourage Russia to attack NATO allies if they don't contribute enough towards defense spending? What is the message that not only sends to the world, but especially to U.S. allies? Well, now, you know, I've got to be careful. I can't talk about things that have been said on the campaign trail. All I can tell you is that under this particular president, President Biden, as Commander-in-Chief, NATO is now more relevant, stronger, bigger than it's ever been before. Uh, and uh, he has really prioritized our, our network of alliances and partnerships around the world. And, of course, NATO is right at the forefront of that uh, when it comes to the security environment uh, on the continent of Europe. Um, and that's what, that's what the American president ought to be about. <laughs> Reinforcing alliances and partnerships and sending a strong signal, particularly to NATO allies, about how seriously we take our Article 5 commitments. And you've heard from President Biden, gosh, I don't know how many times. We will defend, if needed, every inch of NATO territory. That's what the Commander-in-Chief of the United States ought to be saying when it comes to NATO. John Kirby at the White House. The White House announcing he has been promoted to White House National Security Communications Advisor. The Pentagon Press Secretary, Major General Pat Ryder, today confirming that Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has canceled a trip to NATO headquarters in Brussels, Belgium this week for meetings on Ukraine aid and other NATO business. This says the Defense Secretary remains hospitalized at Walter Reed Medical Center and that the Secretary was put under general anesthesia for a non-surgical procedure today. Here is the Pentagon Press Secretary, Pat Ryder. Secretary Austin currently remains hospitalized at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center and is in good condition. Uh, Per the statements we released yesterday, Secretary Austin was transported by a security detail at approximately 2.20 p.m. Eastern Time yesterday to Walter Reed National Military Medical Center to be seen for symptoms suggesting an emergent bladder issue. At approximately 4.55 p.m. the same day, the secretary transferred the functions and duties of the Office of the Secretary of Defense to Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks. Deputy Secretary Hicks continues to retain the functions and duties of the Secretary of Defense at this time. According to Secretary Austin's doctors, after a series of tests and evaluations, he was admitted yesterday evening into the critical care unit at Walter Reed for supportive care and close monitoring. Now, shortly before today's briefing, we released an update from the Secretary's doctors at Walter Reed regarding his status. And to ensure everyone here today and those watching have the same information, uh, I will read that full statement. This is a statement from Dr. John Maddox, Trauma Medical Director, and Dr. Gregory Chestnut, Center for Prostate Disease Research of the Murtha Center, Director at Walter Reed National Military uh, Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, Beginning the statement, quote, Secretary of Defense Lloyd J. Austin III underwent non-surgical procedures under general anesthesia to address his bladder issue. We anticipate a successful recovery and will closely monitor him overnight. A prolonged hospital stay is not anticipated. We anticipate the secretary will be able to resume his normal duties tomorrow. The current bladder issue is not expected to change his anticipated full recovery. 
His cancer prognosis remains excellent, end quote. Moving forward, we will continue to provide updates as new information becomes available regarding Secretary Austin's status, and we'll certainly, uh, we all certainly wish him a speedy recovery. In the meantime, Secretary Austin will no longer travel to Brussels this week as originally scheduled. However, Wednesday's Ukraine Defense Contact Group will continue it, albeit virtually. While Secretary Austin currently intends to participate in the virtual UDCG, he will remain flexible depending on his health care status. Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, Dr. Celeste Wallander, who will be in Brussels this week, is prepared to represent the Secretary as required. And the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General C.Q. Brown Jr., will also be participating in the UDCG virtually from Washington, D.C. Ministers of Defense and senior military officials from nearly 50 nations will convene virtually to discuss the ongoing crisis in Ukraine and the continued support from the international community to provide the Ukrainian people with the means necessary to defend their sovereign territory. Separately, U.S. Permanent Representative to NATO Ambassador Julie Smith will represent Secretary Austin at the NATO Defense Ministerial scheduled for Thursday. We will be sure to keep you updated on outcomes for, from both of these important meetings. The Pentagon Press Secretary, Major General Pat Ryder, part of his opening statement at his news conference today. Defense Secretary Austin is 70 years old. Reporter asked the press secretary how serious his condition is. I want to get a sense of how serious this is. This is Secretary Austin's second uh, trip to the intensive care unit at Walter Reed since his surgery. Um, he's canceled his trip. Can you give us a sense of where he's at in his recovery? And is this latest hospitalization part of ongoing cancer treatments? Um, what can you give us as a status on his prostate cancer? Yeah, thanks, Tara. Uh, I'd, I'd point you back to the, the statement there uh, that I just read. You know, in, in terms of the, the secretary's condition, uh, as highlighted, he's in good condition, according to his doctors. Um, he will remain in the uh, ICU ward for the duration of his stay in order to provide appropriate privacy uh, and will continue to receive critical care support in order to closely monitor his progress for now. Um, and, and as I highlighted in the statement from his doctors, uh, his current bladder issue is not expected to uh, change his anticipated full recovery from cancer, uh, and his prognosis for cancer remains excellent. Is the bladder issue a complication from his surgery to treat prostate cancer, or is it part, you know, is it related to his prostate cancer? Uh, Tara, I don't have anything to provide at this point beyond what I've uh, shared with you, but certainly, again, as we have more information, we'll be sure to pass it along. The Pentagon Press Secretary, Pat Ryder. President Biden today joked about his age and memory. This follows last week's release of a special counsel's report into the president's handling of classified documents that included language saying that Mr. Biden would likely present himself to a jury as he did during our interview of him as a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory, as the special counsel was explaining why no charges are being brought. President spoke today at the National Association of Counties Legislative Conference in Washington. We're promoting clean energy and industries of the future made here in America, made in America. What I didn't realize, and I've been around, I know I don't look like it, but I've been around a while. (laughs) I do remember that. (laughs) 
President Biden today in Washington at the National Association of Counties Legislative Conference at the White House. Some more questions about the president's age and re-election campaign to the White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre. Thanks, Karine. A new ABC News Ipsos poll shows that 86% of Americans think Biden is too old to serve another term. That is a higher percentage than what we found in a previous poll in September. So clearly polling shows this is a persistent issue. What is the White House strategy to try and change that perception? So look, we're going to continue to lead on leadership, right? We're going to continue to focus on what this president has been able to get done, uh, what the president has been able to get done uh, on behalf of the of the American people. Uh, and look, I'll quote a little bit of uh, what the First Lady said, uh, I think incredibly well, just a couple days ago. Uh, President Biden does more in one hour than most people do in a day. His age with experience and expertise is an incredible asset, and he proves it every day. And that's what we believe. We believe that his age and his experience, because he was a senator, because he was obviously vice president, because he has these long, um, you know, long decades of relationships uh, with leaders, uh, obviously across the globe, and what he's been able to do, that's what we're going to lean into. That's what we're going to speak to. We're going to speak to how he turned the economy back on its uh, feet. We're going to speak to the 14.8 million jobs that he was able to create, how unemployment is at under 4%, how he's, he's able to uh, beat Big Pharma because Medicare can now negotiate and lower costs for the American people. That's what we're going to focus on. And I think that's the most important thing at this moment, at this time, is delivering for the American people and continuing to do that. The White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, at her news conference in the White House briefing room. Associated Press reports that former President Donald Trump is asking the Supreme Court to extend the delay in his election interference trial, saying he is immune from prosecution on charges he plotted to overturn his 2020 election loss. His lawyers filed an emergency appeal with the court on Monday, just four days after the justices heard Trump's separate appeal to remain on the presidential ballot despite attempts to kick him off because of his efforts following his election loss. Trump's lawyers wrote, repeating the arguments that have so far failed in federal courts, without immunity from criminal prosecution, the presidency as we know it will cease to exist. That from Associated Press. Washington Today continues in a moment. Hi, this is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team. I'd like to introduce you to one of the producers here at C-SPAN, my colleague Sean. Thanks, Rachel. If you're a fan of Washington Today, we think you'll also like our evening newsletter, Word for Word, which brings you a recap of the day's most important political and policy events delivered right to your inbox. Read about what happened on Capitol Hill and at the White House and watch video highlights featuring the day's newsmakers. Hear them word for word. Join our community of informed listeners and viewers. Head over to cspan.org slash connect and subscribe to Word for Word today. Thanks for listening and staying connected with Word for Word. Subscribe now at cspan.org slash connect. Thank you. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast on the C-SPAN Now mobile app. It's free and wherever you find your podcasts. Story from NBC News. Earlier today, President Joe Biden scheduled to meet with Jordan's King Abdullah II at the White House as the administration continues talks on a possible hostage release deal in the Israel-Hamas war and has criticized Israel's planned ground assault on the Gaza city of Rafah. The meeting between Biden and Abdullah marks their first since three American soldiers were killed in a drone strike at a base in northeast Jordan last month. The United States has attributed the strike to militant groups being supported by Iran. That was reporting from NBC News. The two leaders made remarks at the White House cross hall, beginning with President Biden. As the king and I discussed today, 
The United States is working on a hostage deal between Israel and Hamas, <clears throat> which would bring an immediate and sustained period of calm to Gaza for at least six weeks, which we could then take the time to build something more enduring. Over the past month, I've had calls with Prime Minister Netanyahu, as well as the leaders of Egypt and Qatar, to push this forward. The key element of the deals are on the table. There are gaps that remain, but I've encouraged Israeli leaders to keep working to achieve the deal. The United States will do everything possible to make it happen. The King and I also discussed the situation in Rafah. As I said yesterday, our military operation in Rafah the major military operation in Rafa should not proceed without a credible plan, a credible plan for ensuring the safety and support of more than one million people sheltering there. Many people there have been displaced, displaced multiple times, fleeing the violence to the north, and now they're packed into Rafa, exposed and vulnerable. They need to be protected. And we've also been clear from the start we oppose any forced displacement of Palestinians from Gaza. Today, the King and I also discussed in detail how to get more humanitarian aid into Gaza from the very beginning. My team and I have relentlessly worked to get more aid in. I urged Congress for months to make sure that our nation's support for Israel and also includes urgently needed aid for innocent Palestinians. And I've spoken repeatedly with partners across the region, including the King, to help facilitate the flow of such aid into Gaza as much as possible, and then to actually get to the people that are, that are needed. We work to get the Rafah crossing open. We work to get Karim Shalom open. And we insist that we remain, it remain open, both remain open. We're working to open other routes as well. And we're also working relentlessly to make sure aid workers can get the aid where it's needed once it gets through. I want to recognize Jordan and the King specifically for all he has done to provide humanitarian aid to Gaza, including just a few days ago. He personally got in a plane and helped conduct an airdrop of urgently needed medical supplies into Gaza. I understand that two of his children have also joined those airdrops. They help fly humanitarian supplies in. And for years, the Queen has been passionate a passionate advocate for the Palestinian people, particularly women and children. President Biden standing beside the King of Jordan at the White House. Here is the King's remarks. We cannot afford an Israeli attack on Rafah. It is certain to produce another humanitarian catastrophe. The situation is already unbearable for over a million people who have been pushed into Rafah since the war started. We cannot stand by and let this continue. We need a lasting ceasefire now. This war must end. We must urgently and immediately work to ensure the sustainable delivery of sufficient aid to Gaza through all possible entry points and mechanisms. And I thank you, Mr. President, for your support on this. Restrictions on vital relief aid and medical items are leading to inhumane conditions. No other UN agency can do what UNRWA is doing in helping the people of Gaza through this humanitarian catastrophe. Its work in other areas of operation, especially in Jordan, where 2.3 million are registered, is also vital. It is imperative that UNRWA continues to receive the support it needs 
to carry out its mandate. The potential threat of Palestinian displacement beyond the borders of Gaza and the West Bank is something we view with extreme concern and cannot be allowed. At the same time, we must ignore, we must not ignore the situation in the West Bank and in the holy sites in Jerusalem. Nearly 400 Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank since October 7th, including almost 100 children and over 4,000 injured. Continued escalations by extremist settlers in the West Bank and Jerusalem's holy sites and the expansion of illegal settlements will unleash chaos on the entire region. The vast majority of Muslim worshippers are not being allowed to enter Al-Aqsa Mosque. Christian churches have also voiced concerns about increasing and unprecedented restrictions and threats. It is also important to stress that the separation of the West Bank and Gaza cannot be accepted. Seven decades of occupation, death and destruction have proven beyond any doubt that there can be no peace without a political horizon. Military and security solutions are not the answer. They can never bring peace. Civilians on both sides continue to pay for this protracted conflict with their lives. All attacks against innocent civilians, women and children, including those of October 7th, cannot be accepted by any Muslim, as I had previously stressed. We must make sure the horrors of the past few months since October 7th are never repeated nor accepted by any human being. King of Jordan, Abdullah II, at the White House, standing beside President Biden. Wall Street Journal reporting from Tel Aviv, Israel is proposing the creation of sprawling tent cities in Gaza as part of an evacuation plan to be funded by the U.S. and its Arab Gulf partners ahead of an impending invasion of a city in the Strip South where 1.2 million Palestinians are sheltering and which Israel says is the last bastion of Hamas. proposal, which was presented to Egypt in recent days, came as the Biden administration warned Israel against going into Rafah without a detailed plan to protect Civilians, Israeli officials pushed back, saying they must carry out a ground offensive in Rafah to eradicate Hamas. That from the Wall Street Journal. The U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai sat down today with a former U.S. Trade Representative under President Obama, Michael Froman. He's now President of the Council on Foreign Relations, talking about U.S. trade policies and priorities ahead of the World Trade Organization Ministerial Conference to be held in Abu Dhabi in two weeks. Michael Froman asked Catherine Tai if the WTO, created in 1994, is still relevant in today's world. WTO used to be known for either broad multilateral or broad uh, plurilateral negotiations, um, monitoring countries' trade policies, being a forum where you could come and talk about each other's trade policies, and then thirdly, dispute settlement. Um, All of those have broken down. Um, over the last 10 years or so in in different ways, right? There's no big Doha round that's dead. Um, The monitoring system, we're reporting more on other countries' subsidies than they're reporting on their own subsidies Mm -hmm. at times, and the dispute settlement system has has ground to a halt Mm -hmm. by actions taken by multiple administrations uh, over over time. Um, What do you see the value of the WTO now going forward, and how does this reform agenda that uh, that uh, you're pursuing at MC13, the upcoming ministerial, how will that position the WTO going forward? Certainly. 
So I know that uh, those of us in trade, uh, we're hard on ourselves and we're hard on each other. We're a hard charging bunch, right? That's what makes, that's what makes being USTR and, and, and trade negotiators really fun is the, the angst. I don't think anybody bring. thinks we're really fun. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think you're fun. I hope that, you know, amongst ourselves, I think that there's a certain type of uh, trade fun. Um, but uh, um, I, I guess what I would say is uh, this to your question, which is um, uh, going into MC13, I appreciate you've articulated sort of the three branches of the WTO as an institution. Um, we tend to really kind of be hand ringers around is the WTO still relevant? Has it broken down? Is the multilateral trading system on the ropes? If you can lift yourself out of this angstiness of you know, trade negotiators and our, and our compatriots, and you look at the WTO amongst its sister institutions, the Bretton Woods institutions, and you, go, you, look at, you look at the World Bank and the IMF and the IFC, and then you also look at the UN. These are all institutions, and this is sort of the WTO then, you know, standing as the, the current incarnation of what had been the GATT in the post-World post War II system. Um, all of these institutions are grappling with the fact that they are showing signs of age, that they were born at a time of um, uh, a world order that has done a lot, has, done, has been quite successful, but that today in 2023, it is a fundamentally different world that we live in than uh, we were in in, say, 1945, 1948, right? And so the question for all of us is one of adaptation, of modernization, and of reform. How do we reflect in these institutions the kinds of relationships that we have with each other and the kind of uh, economy and world that we live in right now? And I think if you look at it that way, I not deeply in the world of UN or the World Bank. We are all adjacent. But my reflection would be that there is a, there is a very serious uh, reform consciousness, consciousness of the need for reform in each of these institutions. But that if you look at the WTO, this is the one institution where reform is squarely on the agenda and where we are grappling with the questions of reform extremely robustly. We're having very honest and difficult conversations. And I think by that measure, the reinforcement is how important the WTO is and uh, how we are actually ahead of the sister institutions and the multilateral and the international framework in terms of grappling with this need for uh, being updated. One more, one more item I wanted to, to make sure to emphasize in terms of the value of the WTO as I'm preparing for MC13. Uh, one of the things that I am actually legitimately truly looking forward to is having the opportunity at MC13 in the WTO context to see so many of my counterparts. That is a huge part of the value of the WTO, which is it is the place where 164 and soon to be 166 economies all continue to show up and all continue to maintain relationships with each other. And at this time of increasing geopolitical tensions, that is extremely valuable. United States Trade Representative Catherine Tai in a conversation with former U.S. Trade Representative Michael Froman, who's now Council on Foreign Relations President at a CFR program in Washington. Those 164 member nations that she mentioned covers 98% plus of global trade 
and GDP. And from the WTO website, there's this. Resolving trade disputes is one of the core activities of the WTO. A dispute arises when a member government believes another member government is violating an agreement or a commitment that is made to the WTO. WTO has one of the most active international dispute settlement mechanisms in the world. Since 1995, 622 disputes have been brought to the WTO, and over 350 rulings have been issued. That was from the WTO website. The Federal Communications Commission Commissioner, Republican Brendan Carr, is joining a bipartisan call from Congress to investigate Apple's actions to disable an app known as Beeper Mini, which its website explains is a standalone Android app built specifically to send and receive blue bubble messages with iPhones. The members of Congress want the Justice Department to investigate whether Apple violated antitrust laws. Commissioner Carr saying today that Apple may have also violated FCC regulations. He spoke at a conference in Washington hosted by the Internet Education Foundation. How many of you here are familiar with the issue of Beeper Mini? Raise your hands, Beeper Mini. That's it. One, a couple. Okay. So quick primer. Uh, Beeper Mini was a technology that was rolled out uh, in December of last year that came up with a solution to the blue bubble, green bubble, walled garden. It enabled people on Android devices, whether Google or Samsung phones, to communicate directly with iMessage users in a blue bubble fashion, meaning there wasn't low contrast, there wasn't a degrading of photos or a degrading of video. In, in that way, among other things, in my view, it promoted accessibility and usability by people with disabilities, including having the ability to introduce more competition, which is good for everybody. And this is where there's a role for the FCC. I think the FCC should investigate Apple's conduct with respect to Beeper Mini. Subsequently, Apple made changes to iMessage to disable the functionality of Beeper Mini. And I think the FCC should investigate Apple's conduct there to see if it complies with the FCC's Part 14 rules. The FCC's Part 14 rules, in particular, 47 CFR 14.20 and 14.21, flow from a landmark disability rights statute called the CVAA, the Communications and Video Accessibility Act. And those provisions talk about accessibility and how there's a provision in there expressly that says covered providers, which includes Apple's electronic messaging service, shall not install network features, functions, or capabilities that impede accessibility and usability. And so I think the FCC should launch an investigation to look at whether Apple's decision to degrade the beeper mini functionality that was being provided, which again encouraged accessibility and usability, was a step that violated the FCC's rules in Part 14. Rules that when the FCC adopted them, they analogized to Section 251, which is our core provision on interconnection. And I think this is one, again, sort of small example of the broader negative consequences that come from Apple maintaining and perpetuating a walled garden approach to technology. But we're not just seeing it here. There's a potential to see it in the future as well, whether it's with AI as those technologies continue to roll out, or AR or VR. I think there are potentially negative consequences if Apple perpetuates a world in which it treats its own proprietary technologies one way and degrades the performance of competitive ones. 
FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr, Republican at the Internet Education Foundation Conference in Washington, D.C. You can find the full video at our video library, cspan.org. Wall Street today, the Dow up 125, Nasdaq down 48, S&P down 4. This day after the Super Bowl, there were quite a few news conferences and speeches in Washington that started with some comments about the game and also a certain celebrity who attracted even non-diehard football fans. Here are State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller, followed by the White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre and Congressman Don Beyer, Democrat from Virginia. Happy Monday. Happy day after the Super Bowl to Chiefs fans. Condolences to condolences. Condolences to the four, are you a 49ers fan? Yeah. So am I, Saeed. We have an issue in which we agree. Madonna, uh, Madonna, a lot of 49ers, a lot of 49ers fans in this room. Well, a, uh, uh, condolences, condolences to all my fellow 49ers fans. The only thing I will say, if any of you thought that Patrick Mahomes wasn't going to do that at some point, then watching Patrick Mahomes for very long. Happy Monday and good afternoon to everyone. Hope everyone got some rest after last night's Super Bowl. Uh, the president was able to catch some of the game, and on his behalf, I want to extend a big congratulations to the Kansas City Chiefs on their third Super Bowl win in just five seasons, and also congratulations to all the Swifties out there. The president looks forward to welcoming them back once again to the White House to celebrate their latest victory. As you know, it is a White House tradition. I was with my daughter watching the Super Bowl last night. First time ever she's wanted to watch the Super Bowl. Uh, just fascinating. You know, there's people who watch football and people who watch Taylor watching football. Um, and so every time Kelsey would catch a pass, it would be very exciting. Congressman Don Beyer, Democrat from Virginia. Before that, the White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, and starting things off, the State Department spokesperson, Matthew Miller. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter, Word for Word, and get the stories making headlines in Washington sent to your inbox every day. It's free. Subscribe at cspan.org slash connect. Have a good night.